listening to Right Where You Are Sitting Now. Hi, welcome to episode 26 of Right Where You Are Sitting Now. I'm Ken Eakins, and joining me in the uh, sought-after chair of doom, <laughs> ho-ho chair of doom, is uh, Raymond Wiley. Hi, Raymond. Oh, hey, Ken. How are you this week? Not too bad, not too bad. Uh, I haven't had you on yeah, for a the- while. Well, I'm, I'm doing all right. You know, the chair of doom is actually just this, the same office chair I always sit in. <laughs> so, but um, you know, we're 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 making intercontinental connections here on sitting now this weekend. Um, you you've gone even farther west this time than than here in Georgia. You, we've got some a Californian on the show. Yeah, we've uh, returned to the west coast in terms of our guests today. So. Uh... I think I'm trying to figure out how many we've actually had. We've had about three or four now, I think, people from the West Coast. And generally, they're they're better, Raymond. I've got to say. <laughs> oh my God! Listen at that. Well, you've had you've had three or four guests from the West Coast, but you've had this this one guest from the East Coast like four or five times on your show. <laughs> I don't know what his name is, but you know, is it Austin kind of Gandhi? Bag, it? Oh, Austin Gandhi. Well. Uh, well, you know, he's not here this week, unfortunately. He's out in the field, out in the wilderness, doing the hermit thing. Disciplining um, children. But, <laughs> oh, Lord. yes, yes, yes. Let's reveal all while we're doing the intro here. <laughs> yes, he actually does. Um, he works as a wilderness therapist. Um, you may have seen people who do jobs similar to his on, I think there's a there's a reality TV show on MTV now. That, um, it's all about these sorts of people, but um, you know, it, it certainly made him uh, what's the word hardier, right? Mm. So um, he's like he's multi-classing. He's like a fifth-level ranger now, Jesus. as well as being a necromancer of, of so inner power. Sounds like a, a sort of skill you get on World of Warcraft or something. But <laughs> oh well, I was I was thinking more of Dungeons and Dragons Second Edition, but uh, you know you you know take your choice. So we are, I'm old school myself in my nerdiness. We're uh, yeah, I'm gonna say we're going to new plummet into new depths of nerdiness today. <laughs> but, hey, uh, you wanted banter? You got it. <laughs> and what's more geeky than a podcast anyway? But there you there go. You go. <laughs> so we've got a. Uh, on the, if you go to the site sittingnow.co.uk we've got uh, you'll notice we've got a new show I mentioned it last week it's called Behind Closed Doors and it's me and Daddy Tank or Kim as he's revealed his name now finally and a fr- another friend of ours called Maz and we're doing a kind of music show I guess well it's not a kind of music show it is a music show um, where we kind of get hold of I keep saying kind of that's not good but anyway uh, <laughs> we, we, uh, Behind Closed Doors that sounds like a hard-nosed entertainment tonight you're chasing down celebrities and getting panty shots, but that's not what it is. No, no, no. It's uh, more your, uh, which, you know, it's just us trying to be John Peel, basically. Anyone in the UK will know who <laughs> that is, but uh, <laughs> doing badly at it, you know, not, not making anywhere near the amount of money that John Peel made, I'm sure. But uh, anyway, it's uh, kind of underground music, alternative music. There'll be no major label stuff on there, much to uh, Raymond's Grinch or... To, Oh man! I thought it was going to be like later on with jewels, except nothing live. You know, whatever. Mm. So. Well, you never know. We, we do plan to do some live recordings, but uh, that's all stuff for the future. We've also been uh, testing video as well, which is quite cool. So expect some sitting now video. I'd say at the end of May, very early June, uh, and then we're going to start doing, I guess, once a month, maybe twice a month, video podcasts as well. <clears throat> so oh, get- that's cool. You've got an upcoming Georgia Guidestones video. Can, ah. and we could totally hook you up with some content for your new video section. Oh, that'd be quite cool. 
Definitely, yeah, because you've been all over that, haven't you? Well, we tried to be all over it, and then uh, ever since Valentine's Day, we've been working so hard on this tour we're going on, uh, because of you, Ken, Mm -hmm. uh, that um, we haven't got around to releasing the video, but soon, my friends, very soon, uh, a a video answer to the masked ranter that we talked about in the previous episode, uh, voiced by the great Austin Gandy, and uh, yeah, so keep an eye out for that. what else you got coming up, Ken? We well, you know full well what we have coming up, Raymond. We have a, uh, we have some stragglers from the US coming over for a week, you know, causing trouble. <laughs> um, yeah, we've basically got you two guys coming over, and we're going to talk a bit more about that in the outro. So if you want to hear more about Raymond and Austin coming over to uh, invade our British you know, women or soil or whatever, um, <laughs> then. Uh, um, yeah, listen on after the, the interview. But first of all, we're going to go to a break. Eerie Radio, opening the door to the unknown. Listener feedback. Really looking forward to the new episodes. So keep up with your work, guys. Thanks. Interviews. There's so many movies, so many documentaries, even books that come out that have factual information in it that maybe, you know, this is a gradual way of kind of educating the public to as to what's going on. Visit Erie Radio at www.erieradio.com. So, uh, Scott, I've, uh, I've kind of decided to become a superhero now. A superhero? Yeah, like, you know, like a full, um, like saving people, burning buildings. Pretty ladies, stuff, you know, all that stuff, all that good stuff. Really? Well, what's your superhero name? Um, awesome man. Wow. Uh, don't quit your day job. Hey, this is Scott. And this is Ben, and we're your hosts for Two Geeks, a Mike, and a Podcast. The show where we discuss all the latest news and rumors in the entertainment industry, all from a geek's perspective. The only perspective that matters. Join us on the web at geekshow.us. Where we become our friends at MySpace at myspace.com slash two geeks. Two geeks, a mic, and a podcast. We're here to save your day. So our guest today is a expert in Philip K. Dick studies, I suppose you could say. Um, he's uh, yeah, an expert in the author of Philip K. Dick. He also knows, he's also done a lot of uh, study into the world of, uh, I guess, the meshing of uh, mysticism and Cy- Siberia, I guess, would you say, Raymond? Uh, cyberspace? Yeah, I don't know. That's an old... That That's makes, an old word now. Yeah, I know. That makes me think of like the early 90s and like really old issues of Wired magazine. Don't know why. A very young Angelina Jolie. Yeah. Uh, anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah, Eric Davis, right? I actually was here for this interview, Ken. I know I didn't ever ask any questions during the interview, but I was sitting there with a mic next to me. Unfortunately, I had to turn it down because uh, the city of Athens, Athens, Georgia, where I live, the city of Athens pulled up in front of my house and started digging up uh, my front yard uh, because there's some kind of sewer issue or something well, so that's what they want you to believe that's right it's merely my foul stench uh, and they've just gotten so many calls to the sewage <laughs> department that they came up here and just started digging instead but yeah so i had to turn the the fader down sorry i didn't get any questions in there but this guy was really sharp ken yeah he's uh i've wanted to do a show about philip k dick 
specifically for quite a long time. But Eric Davis is kind of such an interesting guy. I kind of needed to slip at least a bit of his own kind of uh, work in there as well at the end. So the show you're going to get about 50 minutes of Philip K. Dick banter, I suppose. And then after that, some, you know, a bit more on, on what Eric Davis is about, you know, what his kind of studies into uh, what he calls technosis is. And uh, yeah, so it's a pretty cool interview and uh, we'll go over to that now. Eric Davis, thanks a lot for coming on the show. I really appreciate you giving us some of your time, man. Absolutely. Uh, can you give, to be here. Uh, could you give us kind of a brief biography of yourself, please? Brief, brief biography. I'll try to be brief. <laughs> um, I'm, a, I'm a native Californian. I grew up in Southern California. And uh, after school, I decided I didn't want any more school. And so I decided to become a, a rock critic. And I became a rock critic in New York City in the late 80s and early 90s, um, but I'd always had interest in uh, mysticism and magic and esoteric things, and so I kind of mixed the two worlds of uh, pop culture writing and uh, sort of fringe fringe surfing as both a journalist and a participant, um, and uh, I became really interested in the emerging internet culture of virtual reality and all that stuff in the, in the early 90s when it was more myth than reality, but it was a very fascinating uh, time in a lot of ways, I was very, um, very shaped by the early '90s, which I think was a very interesting um, kind of uh, renaissance of uh, psychedelia and mysteries and of various sorts, but in the context of a very heated up pop culture uh, media technology environment. Um, and uh, so I took those interests into my first book, uh, Technosis, which looks at the uh, mystical and magical dimension of media technology, uh, both in terms of how we think about these things and in some sense how they actually work in our lives. And so I, I you know, since that time I've become probably progressively more interested in some of the uh, esoteric uh, ideas that have always been intriguing me, um, although I'm still trying to kind of mix them up with pop culture stuff. My, uh, my second book was a, a short volume in the 33 and a third series of uh, uh, writings on rock records and I wrote about uh, Led Zeppelin 4 but I wrote about it from a magical perspective thinking about how you can use the occult as a metaphor or as an interpretive matrix to approach popular culture which is an increasingly um, you know hot idea which I'm really happy to see being developed by lots of people mm. And uh, and then my uh, third book, I moved back to California from the East Coast in 1995, and I, I've been kind of getting more and more into my roots, if you will, like kind of wondering what made me such a weirdo in, uh, in high school <laughs> and uh, how I, uh, what kind of currents I was tapping into back in the, in the late 70s and early 80s when I was growing up. And uh, this research led to my third book, which is called... Um, uh, the Visionary State, A Journey Through California's Spiritual Landscape. 
and it uh, looks at the history of alternative religion in California, of which there's such an extraordinary and crazy amount. Um, yeah. But it does it by looking by visiting the places. So it's kind of a psychogeography of the place, looking at the temples and the sacred sites that kind of um, housed these various groups and individuals. Uh, so it was a, a real personal journey as well, because for me, because I got to travel around and I researching these places and talking to people and kind of taking on the the, the vibe of all of these environments and all these peculiar. Uh, peculiar buildings, and today I'm, I'm continuing to do my research. My my uh, my next book is going to be a collection of um, sort of a, a, a greatest hits of uh, 20 years of freelance writing, and uh, but it's mostly focused on the eso- on the more esoteric material, and it, it's going to be called uh, Nomad Codes: Adventures in Modern Esoterica, and that should be out in the in the fall. So I, I've you know I'm pretty much been riding the riding the same kind of set of interests personally and you know intellectually as a writer and as a um, you know as an explorer hmm. uh, it ri- rides up and down but uh, the the adventure continues. Yeah, I mean, so one one person you've been I know you were interested in perhaps quite a while ago now, but I assume you're probably still interested in him is uh, Philip K. Dick. Um, could you uh, give us maybe a kind of a kind of potted history almost of Philip K. Dick. I know that's going to be quite difficult to do. <laughs> kind of a strange Well, I'll, first I'll talk a little bit about just how I encountered him because that was kind of yeah. an interesting experience in my, my life. It was, I was... Uh, I lived in the summer of 1985. I lived in Berkeley, um, in, in, in UC Berkeley, and um, I lived at a place called Barrington Hall, uh, which was a... Uh, very, a, a notorious uh, student-run co-op that was notorious for being a completely drug-addled weirdo zone. So it was kind of like a place that time forgot. You know, it was dense with the bizarre, psychedelic, twisted, magical currents that were very strong in Berkeley in the early 1970s. If you think about Robert Anton Wilson's Cosmic Trigger and that whole kind of network of synchronicity and Crowley and mm. weirdness uh, that you know was in Berkeley, uh, it 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 sort of had a toehold in the early in the mid '80s still at this place called Barrington Hall, and that's where the, I met this very peculiar fellow who turned me on to Philip K. Dick, who also ha- having lived in Berkeley and the Bay Area for a, a, quite a while, you know, in some ways, of, uh, sort of connected into that same. Uh, matrix of weirdness, and um, so- soon after that, I became totally obsessive. Oftentimes, when people first discover Dick's um, peculiar science fictions, they grow rather addicted to them. Yeah, and they yeah, read yeah, them definitely. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of them to read, so it kind of takes over your life for a while, which is, fr- frankly, part of the appeal. There's something extremely infectious and and uh, perspective shifting. Uh, about Dick's work, both in obvious and in subtle ways, um, and you you really it's almost like a kind of apprenticeship uh, to mm. really dive into him in a way that's you know true for other authors, many other authors, of course. But there's a particular flavor uh, with Dick. Dick himself, though he didn't grow, um, was, didn't wasn't born in California, was a thoroughly a Californian, and uh, also lived uh, at both in Northern and Southern California, like like I have, and they're very different places. Um, and I really look at him very much as a California writer, writing amidst uh, uh, the sort of failed, uh, you know, a, fa- a, f- 
a failed site of uh, of longings for transformation and um, and a new world, a, a kind of trashy pop media culture with a powerful countercultural uh, legacy, a powerful drug culture. Uh, a lot of uh, emphasis on invention. There's a lot of science fiction. There's a lot of science. There's a lot of novelty. There's a lot of the future. Mm. Uh, the internet starts here. Biotechnology starts here. Lasers start here. On and on and on. There's a lot of uh, a lot of the future in in good and certainly the bad sense. Um, is born in California and McDonald's comes from here, first freeways in America. Da, 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 you know, it goes. It's a prophetic place, but also often in a dark and sort of twisted. Uh, way as as well as a, a utopian way, and Dick very much wrote out of that out of that space, um, and uh, you know he was poor most of his life. Uh, there's a, a intense kind of psychological pressure to a lot of his books. Uh, personally, he had led a very kind of mixed up uh, life. Uh, super generous guy, very brilliant, very much an autodidact, doing it all on his own. Um, uh, and you know, in some ways, you could look at his books as being. Uh, combinations of very realistic accounts of ordinary human beings with all of their tawdry failings and psychological problems and lusts and lies and very like kind of an almost existential sort of depressing mid-century realistic view of human beings thrust into these worlds of bizarre uh, uh, absurdist technologies uh, Gnostic cosmic conflicts between forces of good and evil, and worlds that are constantly collapsing in on their, on their, um, on their characters, and to some extent, therefore, on their readers. So you're inside of a world, and then gradually realize that it's not uh, the way it seems. That the kind of basic Matrix model, and Dick took that that problematic of the false world farther and in more interesting directions than anybody that I know. Uh, mm -hmm. And that, I think, more than any single thing, that and along with the very strong sense of personality and humanity, broken humanity that comes through his writings, I think account for uh, his longevity and the fact that um, unlike when I first started reading him in the late 1980s when, you know, I really had to scavenge for uh, used paperbacks and there was, you know, some reprints that were already coming out. Um, but it was still very much a cult, and you know you'd find other people who were Dick fans, and it was a cult, and you you got in, in you know initiated, and you started to trade information, and I joined the Philip K. Dick Society, and there was this real sense of camaraderie, and then you know in that way that's both kind of marvelous and a little bit disappointing, um, you know as the as the 90s went on and and more films were made out of Dick's work, and he became more and more recognized, and now he's you know he's part of the canon of American. Uh, writers. I mean, uh, Library of America, which is a very middle-brow, mainstream, uh, traditional publisher, which publishes sort of the official volumes of, you know, Hen uh, of, of, you know, Herman Melville and Henry James, and you know, all these sort of classic American writers. You know, have, have put out a couple volumes of Dick's novels, and really, that's the sign that he's kind of now he's sort of arrived. And yeah. uh, but it it is it. Though it is sort of disappointing because it's fun to be a cultist. Um, obviously, in the bigger picture, it's it's quite a treat. Yeah, it's kind of uh, interesting to see how that work will be received as it gets kind of consumed more by the mainstream readers, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, I think it, it is interesting to think about what how how widely it spreads and what how it gets into people's heads, and you know, even just that there's a whole generation 
you know, who, who saw the matrix when they were 14, you know, and what does that do? You know, does it, does it make it just be another story or does it actually kind of, uh, you know, cr create the possibility for a, a more, a, you know, a deeper insight into the constructed nature of reality? And then how does that work when you meet someone like Dick who takes that basic problematic but takes it into a much more complex and kind of confusing way than, than in the matrix where it's still pretty clear who the good guys and the bad guys are. Yeah. I think um, before we kind of go into the kind of whole pink laser experience that Philip K. Dick had, I was wondering if we could maybe sort of talk a little bit about kind of the earlier uh, works of Philip K. Dick, because he kind of, he wasn't always so um, esoteric in his writing, was he? I mean, originally he kind of started off, a, a, I guess the earlier short stories especially, he was kind of a bit more kind of, uh, normal is not the right word, but he was a bit more kind of, straightforward <laughs> that yeah, makes sense. yeah yeah i see what you're saying it, it's it's an interesting one it's, it's kind of a general you know kind of cliche almost in philip k dick studies that it's like the, the late works are sometimes called the religious works because mm. we'll talk about it in a moment but he has this religious experience in in 1974 and all the most of the writings after that are very much marked by it and obviously there's a there's an uptick in his concern with philosophical mystical and you know cosmological matters um that said the actual reality of it is a little bit more complicated i mean dick himself uh became an episcopalian in 1964 hmm. um right around the time of writing three stigmata of palmer eldridge that's which is probably the one that i have people start <laughs> off with and that's sort of middle period hmm. and there's already a lot of mystical and cosmological and, and religious thinking in that book as well as a number of other books from the 60s going back in the 50s you're right that there's there's more of a there's more of a science fiction mind uh, at, at work there but even there you can see some of these concerns with large cosmic forces especially in the um, uh, the, in, in some of the early novels as well you already get a sense of sort of this these looming spectral uh, forces but I think it is true that in the that the earlier work and certainly through the 60s there's a stronger sense of um, what you might think of in almost a Marxist sense as a kind of historical materialism meaning that he's very aware of how reality is constructed in a pragmatic materialist sense meaning both science Tech, especially technology and the capitalist forces that sort of organize these things. So there's a very mm -hmm. strong kind of real world sense that goes through all of the books, but is more strong in the earlier ones, which kind of makes the 60s books in general the most interesting because they, they're both very rooted in this kind of um, historical materialist way of looking at the world, but they keep exploding in these uh, euphoric, bizarre mystical uh, ways and then gradually you know in the later books Phallus and those um, there's a little bit less of a sense of that uh, realistic world and you become more and more in a, in a kind of uh, uh, religious allegorical space. Yeah definitely I mean uh, you mentioned Three Sigmata I mean that was the first one that really kind of made me sit up and go wow as it were <laughs> that was a fantastic book it's my favorite of the Philip K. Dick stories I think I mean um his writing, uh, one thing I've always kind of observed with his writing is that he tends to, um, unlike other science fiction writers that often 
uh, kind of dropping every man character into this kind of crazy environment, and the story kind of the story they tell becomes about how the character overcomes impossible odds, blah blah blah, gets the girl, that kind of thing. Philip K. Dick tends to put these characters in these uh, sort of futuristic scenarios, but he doesn't let the futuristic scenario overtake the story, if that makes sense. Um, that's the thing that's always appealed to me about Philip K. Dick as well. He he doesn't. Like with Asimov or anyone like that, he doesn't. You, you don't drown in the uh, in the futuristicness of it. <laughs> if that makes sense. No, I no. It's all there's. It's always very. I mean, it's. It, I think one of the. If you're. If anyone's ever getting into Philip K. Dick, I always highly recommend that they read at least one of his non-science fiction books. Um, you know, Confessions of a Crap Artist, which was the one, the only one that was published during his lifetime, is still probably the best one. But there's a number of the other ones that are very interesting. And one of the things that you find when you read those is is one, you, you see what his characters and his sense of, of, of human life is like, stripped of all, of, of, of all this mystery. And it is very, very believable, kind of depressing, very ground, very recognizable. You know, you yeah, know yeah. these messages. These are all, these are you and all your friends in your less than noble states. <laughs> uh, you know, tr- struggling, trying to get by, trying to find a reason, trying to communicate trying not to let your obsessions destroy your life once again. And so you feel this very strong sense of, of a kind of existential intimacy with, uh, with ordinary human, the, the ordinary human mess. Hmm. Um, and then when you read, go back to the, the science fiction, you see that that layer, that concern, that, that, that uh, it, ultimately that empathy with the way human beings are and in some sense the way that the author himself is, permeates these completely outlandish scenarios so that even as crazy thing happens upon crazy thing, and it's a lot less logical often than, than an Asimov or some most science fiction where there's a more whatever technological coherence or you know, logic to some of the things that happen, nonetheless you still feel very kind of grounded in this very recognizable sense of human subjectivity and human consciousness, mm. human personality. Um, and I, I really do believe that that's one of the ways that even though they're often dark uh, and, and you know, not happy-making uh, tales, that there's actually something very um, healing about them because they kind of they kind of both ground you in what's really real about human experience and at the same time show you all of the bizarre possibilities that are lurking in our technologies in our in our future or in the uh, you know the multiple dimensions of reality uh, and there's something actually very um, not heartening exactly but very uh, uh, affirming about that that mixture hmm. it's certainly a very recognizable kind of ambience or atmosphere to his books so, uh, you, you kind of get to this point in the book where you just realize that everything's just going to go to shit in, my, in most cases uh, yeah. and uh, but yeah the way he kind of controls the story so it's not overly depressing if that makes sense it's always a, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, it's a hard one i mean i i because sometimes I, I i was so obsessive about these when i was younger and 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 i pick them up now and i sometimes find them more depressed i'm like oh man that's <laughs> oof ow Oh Jesus! Can't you guys be nice to each other? You yeah. know, and uh, it's uh, it's an it's an problem because I didn't really feel that as much when I was when I was uh, when I was younger. Mm. Um, but I think it is because ultimately he really cares about these people, and he's trying to heal himself in the books. And so it's like if you, as you read more, you get a more of a sense of his personality. I mean, he's one of those interesting. One of the things that's interesting about him. Not, not unlike H.P. Lovecraft in some ways, is that if you at all begin to be a fan, you, you absorb a huge amount of information about his actual life. 
his life, his personality, his his sense of of who he is starts to permeate your own experience of his books and his and 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 reading him in a way that other authors don't you don't get as upset in a way it was because he was putting himself into his books in a in a more intimate way than i think a lot of other authors do he wasn't just coming up with ideas he was putting his own psychological obsessions his own dreams his own um conflicts and in some sense he's trying to kind of work out his own you know, psychological issues, of which there were a considerable number, uh, through his work. And so the, it is also kind of a, a, a you know, a healing for, for him. And, you, and, and so you get this, there, there's a kind of positive uh, characteristic, even, even when the stuff itself can be rather, rather dire. Hmm. So, I mean, obviously, yeah, I mean, it's on record that Philip K. Dick was quite paranoid and it comes out in his books, especially before uh, before Vallis, actually. You find it in The Scanner Darkly and, uh, in fact, quite a few of his books prior to Vallis, the kind of Vallis trilogy, if you will. Um, what kind of, what, this pink laser experience, were, did, were there any kind of symptoms of it before it actually occurred, if, if you know what I mean? Was there any kind of uh, warning that it would happen? Well, I, I would say that in a slightly different sense in that, in that one way of going is, that did he have any, um, whatever, extraordinary or visionary experiences before 1974? And, and the answer to that is definitely yes. Now, mm. you know, as with any reporting of somebody's, you know, internal subjective experience, there's always these weird questions that are raised. But it seems quite uh, clear that he saw, for example, uh, a, a metallic fa- evil face in the sky grinning down at him from the skies over Marin County uh, in 63 or 64, uh, shortly before writing Three Stigmata. And in fact, the, the actual image of Palmer Eldritch and his stigmata is based on this vision that he had on the, in, in the sky. Um, and there were, you know, a handful of other somewhat lesser eruptions of the weird into his subjective experience in a non you know presumably non drug intensified way although it's hard to know because you know he was always a, a little scrambly and um definitely liked his his amphetamine and in mm. the few years before uh, 2374 he had really gone through the nadir of his life he'd attempted suicide he had been, you know, abusing and abusing drugs the most. He had gone into a rehab clinic. He had moved temporarily from California out of his, you know, crazy situation. And he had just been moving down to a new place, to, to Southern California, to Orange County, uh, not that long before, um, before this, these events happened. So, you know, there was definitely a, a kind of transitional period in his life. And there were certainly signs that whatever combination of, of, of effects led to uh, this experience that he already had it in the cards, so to speak, um, mm. in terms of his own, his own makeup. Yeah. I mean, uh, okay, could you describe kind of what the pink laser experience is for people that may not know what it was? Sure. It's a, uh, um, he had a toothache, is this tail, and uh, the de- a delivery woman from the pharmacy comes to his door uh, with some sodium pentothal and uh, he answers the door and she has uh, one of those Christian uh, fish symbols dangling around her neck and one presumes she probably had a, a nice pair of breasts 
because Philip K. Dick loved breasts, as anybody who reads his <laughs> books <laughs> quickly yeah, discovers. Yeah. So one can imagine with his eyes drifting, you know, southward, and then he looks at this fish uh, thing, and it it triggers something in him, this sort of blinding uh, laser beam or, or you know information stream of uh, of uh, of pink light, although the, he doesn't really talk about the pink light as intensely until a little bit later in his descriptions of what happens to him. But what happens to him lasts for months, on and off, but off and on, of a whole variety of very powerful, whatever you want to call it, psychophysiological phenomena that include, you know, um, prophetic dreams, uh, feeling like he's in contact with a second century Christian named Thomas who's kind of befuddled by life in the modern world. He looks around him at the landscape of 1970s Orange County and it, it becomes uh, uh, the, the landscape of, of Rome during late antiquity. Uh, he's listening to the radio, and the uh, the Be- a Beatles song bec- becomes a message that tells him that his son Christopher uh, is needs needs to go to the hospital immediately. And then he goes, and the doctor says that the you know the kid had a hernia and it was really dangerous, and that it was a good thing he brought him in. A story that is does not get a very much uh, full-bodied backup from the other human beings at that point. Uh, so there's no incon- incontrovertible weirdness uh, that we can look at as any sign of any kind of mystical universe. Basically, this is something that's happening inside of Philip K. Dick's, uh, uh, Philip K. Dick's head. Mm-hmm. And out of this experience, he, he I mean, what, what was most interesting about it is, um, and indeed kind of marks him as a very unusual kind of, if you if we can use the word, prophet or religious seer or visionary is because, you know, he did have visions and he wrote books that were metaphysical and religious to some degree based on his experiences, so it's a fair enough way to see him. But most prophets or visionaries, they see some vision and then they get an idea about what it means and then they preach the idea. You know, I've seen that the you know the world is actually run by a fe- great feathered serpent, and I am the feathered <laughs> serpent, and I'm going to tell you about what's happening in 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 a few years' time. Or, you know, uh, I'm you know Joseph Smith, and I've gotten the revelation of the Book of Mormon, and we're going to start a new church, blah blah blah. But Philip K. Dick just never stopped asking questions. You, he could never live inside what Robert Anton Wilson called a, a reality tunnel. Hmm. He was constantly undermining his reality tunnels. So what happened after this uh, bizarre set of experiences that lasted on and off, really I think for about a year and a half, I think he, t- he just says about, it's 1976 that it finally stops. He doesn't feel this artificial intelligence, he calls it sometimes, this kind of presence, this voice in his head. And he feels bereft and kind of lost. But he spends the rest of his life trying to figure out what it could possibly have meant, what it hmm. co- could possibly have, have been. And he wrote a voluminous amount of notes, this, this immense exegesis that remains largely unpublished and according to most uh, people who've looked at it, largely uh, unreadable or at least, least difficult to read or very you know, complicated and kind of hairy. Um, you know, trying to figure out what, what really happened to him. So it's sort of like, it's just a big enigma and that you never get anything more than this big 
uh, enigma and that quality of enigma, even as for us as readers or, or listeners, you're going, well, what happened to the guy? Well, clearly he had some kind of brain thing. But you go, the more you go into it and the more you see the pattern, the way that like patterns in his books that he was set up for decades sort of come to life in his head, it's just, it's so rich and poetic that it becomes kind of, I don't know, sort of simplistic and dull to go, well, he had a temporal lobe epilepsy and da 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 da. You're like, well, okay, maybe. But the the subjective experience that came out of that was so multi-leveled, so rich and so resonant, so driving to the core of what we mean by meaning that it seems churlish to reduce to that. Mm -hmm. And yet any other scenario is absurd. So you're left with this kind of postmodern enigma where you can't really resolve it one way, or at least I can't resolve it one way or the other. And to me, that's part of what gives it such power is that it's, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a confused and scrappy vision rather than a vision on high. Yeah. Uh, and it's really in how he and his books and the characters in his books and even we as readers wrestle with that vision where things really get interesting. How do we engage it? How do we think about it? What does it mean? Can we say it means anything? Is it just meaningless? Is it just the brain? Et cetera, et cetera. Like the way that it raises those questions, I think itself reflects something about our spiritual predicament, our, our, the condition of our culture, the condition of visionary experience in our culture. Uh, it's it's very rich stuff. Yeah, I mean, uh, often people start off reading Philip K. Dick with Vallis, and I'm never quite convinced that's the best way to kind of start reading Philip K. Dick. No. <laughs> um, Not at all. I mean, but for those who kind of like are interested in, because it is it's it's considered a trilogy, isn't it? Um, there's was it Vallis? Uh, what's the other two? It's um, the Divine Invasion. That's the one. Um, and uh, the uh, Transmigration of Timothy Archer. Yeah, and so and they're all they're all great books, but I wouldn't I wouldn't start with any of them. I think the ones that you really got to start with the the sick the great '60s books. You know, yeah. those are those are the best books. The best books are, you know. Uh, well, I mean, there's tons of them, but, you know, Three Stigmata, Dr. Blood Money, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, uh, Ubik. I like A Maze of Death, which is not often, although the, uh, it's not often listed in the top top ten, but it's amazing. Yeah. Martian Time Slip, oh, those was, are all places to start. I was about to say Martian Time Slip. I love that book. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. It? Um, so if you were to sort of try and describe the Valis trilogy, for use of a better word, um, to someone, what would you... How would you describe it? It's sure, it's, it's actually a, it's an interesting uh, uh, issue. So, I mean, Vallis is an amazing book. I do think it's actually one of the most important books he wrote. But it's just it's it's kind of off in a lot of ways uh, from his other things, and makes a lot more sense the more you know, you know about him. Basically, what happens in that book? Um, one is he pulls a a sort of postmodern trick that you know much more highbrow people would would cream in their genes to have been able to come up with, which is that he, he splits himself into two characters. There's Philip K. Dick, the science fiction writer, and there's Horse Lover Fat, the guy who has the visions. And basically what happens is autobiographical in the first half of the book. He tells a version of his story with the, with the pink light uh, as as you know, he experienced it living in in Orange County, hanging out with science fiction writers, you know, falling in love with women, dr going crazy, dealing with therapists, um, and it's a fascinating read because it's not really fiction, it's not really autobiography, it's not really an essay, it's not really a religious meditation, but it's all of those. 
Um, he's constantly quoting, uh, uh, citing sources and quoting books in the book. The book is dense with quotations, mm. which is important because what he's doing is he's kind of showing what this stream of information and multiple perspectives felt like to him. Like he felt like he was constantly getting cosmic information. And in a way, reading the book, you as the reader are getting this information. He's quoting his own exegesis and some of the the quotations from the exegesis are fascinating ideas of information mysticism. What if reality is a hologram and that we're just occluded and what happens is we see these signals and we wake up to our true selves. These kind of Gnostic scenarios that really resonate with uh, not, you know, ancient Gnosticism mm. in, really, in really profound ways. The ancient Gnostics uh, believed and you know there were many different varieties of this idea but it was I think it's fair to kind of boil it down to to uh, one to the simple idea that our world our planet is a, a kind of uh, uh, illusion or even a trap um, a, a badly bungled theme park that we forgot uh, uh, exists and so we think it's reality and that um, inside our hearts we have sparks of the true God, sparks of the true uh, divine perspective, and that what happens in the experience of Gnosis, which is always an experience, it's not like a belief system, mm. in the experience of Gnosis is we wake up and remember who we truly are, and suddenly we realize that we're inside of this prison. These images became very important to, to Dick, and you really get that sense of somebody with one foot in this Gnostic visionary world, and then one foot in the ordinary world of of Orange County in the 1970s, struggling to get by and, and stay sane. About halfway through the book, uh, and this is very important that people don't tend to uh, see as much. About halfway through the book, the characters in the novel, which is still basically autobiographical, go see a movie, and they see this movie called Valis, and the movie is some crazy pop junk sci-fi movie, like some you know, mix of The Man Who Fell to Earth and, you know, Ed Wood and Robert Anton Wilson. It's this crazy story. Um, and then, and this is what's really important, Philip K. Dick and Horse Lover Fat and all his friends start interpreting the movie. They start almost paranoically reading all of the little images. They start connecting, well, we see that pot in that one scene, and yeah, out of the corner of your eye, you also see the pot on the guy's desk. And if you look closely to it, there's a little caduceus there with two twisting serpents, and it's a DNA symbol. You know, they start doing this kind of pothead over-interpretation, which we're all familiar with. It's yeah. probably why we love this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. You read the Illuminatus trilogy, you watch the Matrix movies, you know, you, you read comics, Grant Morrison, whatever, and we're always looking for these hidden patterns of meaning. It's part of what, draw, what draws people to the occult and to weirdness, is the sense of, like, these hidden levels of meaning. So all of these characters start reading this film kind of the way you, as a reader, read Philip K. Dick, putting all these pieces together. Maybe it means something. Maybe there's a mystical vision here. Maybe there's a new way of looking at the world. And then what happens after that is that then they, then they enter this kind of fantastic part of the novel where they go and meet the creators of the film and then there's an encounter with a, with a, a divine being who's, a, who's a, this girl child. Uh, and then Philip K. Dick and Horse Lover Fat are temporarily reunited. And then you realize that it's actually one character. Mm. So it's, a, it's totally brilliant and fascinating. And it ends on a very poignant uh, note. 
the two books that come after that, Divine Invasion and the Three Stigmata, I mean, the, the Transmigration of Timothy Archer, um, and this is not me, this is not an original idea to me, other pe- many other people have mentioned it, it's, it could almost be seen as one of the books was written by Horse Lover Fat, and one of the books was written by Philip K. Dick. <laughs> Horse Lover Fat, the visionary, writes The Divine Invasion, which is in completely allegorical story. It lacks the kind of a density, novelistic density that we tend to like in our fictions and that all like all the great books from the 60s that Dick wrote definitely have. It kind of lacks that. It has, it has a little bit more of a fable quality. Uh, there's a lot of religious ideas. There's a lot of sa- you know, uh, savior figures and I think it's a fascinating extremely important book. It's a lot more positive and uh, overtly healing than uh, than Vallis and then a lot of his other books mm. um, but it is a little bit lighter in some sense you kind of have to read it as it's like you read it the way you would read you know Le Petit Prince or the way you would read you know like uh, Aesop's Fables or, or um, Hans Christian Andersen or something there's something kind of fable like about it yeah. but it's very rich full of amazing ideas um, and then the last book, The Transmigration of, of Timothy Archer, is again has a lot of autobiographical elements, and it's about a very, very interesting figure, a very California figure like Philip K. Dick, uh, a guy named uh, um, a Bishop Pike. And Bishop Pike was the uh, uh, Episcopal bishop of the Diocese of Northern California, I believe, or maybe all of California, uh, centered in San Francisco. And he was a super radical. Like, he was, like, so radical, he, he disbelieved the virgin birth. He was, like, going, you know, as radical as you could go in the 1960s, which was a pretty liberal time for the Episcopal Church. Yeah. And he went so far out that he basically left the church and became interested in spiritualism, and his son died. He had this tr- tragic life, uh, and he was, you know, communi- communicating with his son in through spirit mediums. And uh, he went. He ended up dying when he was like looking in the Dead Sea for signs of like uh, Christ's Essene background or some crazy mystical quest and he died in the in the early 70s or late or late 60s and he was friends with philip k dick you know philip k dick was an episcopalian and they met and they they you know they had some some conversations and some friendship and so uh the uh, transmigration of timothy archer is, is kind of based on on uh bishop pike's life and it's also a very interesting book in that the first person you know the a lot of dick's books um they're they're told all in third person, but you there's certain characters who feel like they're more the first person character. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the the main character in that book um, is a woman, and so there's a kind of interesting twist because, um, in general, one of the weaknesses in Dick's works is the is the um, the lack of complexity in the in the female characters. They're often these kind of either they're these evil machine shrews or they're like hotties. And there's there's often, with some exceptions, not a, as as half as complex a sense as he brings to his male characters. But in the end, in this last book, you kind of feel him opening up in a in a new way that's actually um, rather sweet. So it's again, it's a very it's a really great it's a really good book. It's not a great novel, but it's a really good book, particularly if you're already into uh, Dick's work. But it's not a place I would I would start. No, no. <laughs> so what do you think? Um, why do you think Philip K. Dick has kind of such broadening appeal rather than just broad appeal he seems to become more popular uh 
the with each year i mean everyone i know these days seems to at least own one philip k dip book it's it's quite strange from say 10 years ago where i didn't know anyone <laughs> except myself that liked philip k dick so it's kind of what's what's suddenly what's happened in the last would you say like decade or so that's made philip k dick suddenly so much more acceptable to to people's bookshelves yeah well i i mean i i kind of see it in two two dimensions i mean there's there's sort of a the the kind of more uh, cynical real world view and then there's a, a more kind of uh, spiritual uh, oracular view and the the more cynical view is just or not cynical but just kind of practical is that you know it it just so happens that there are, are elements in his books that make for good uh, film ideas and so as film started to be made from his work uh, you know Blade Runner still being the best one but you know a, a number of films that did well Total Recall did very well that you know that just allowed them to start printing these books and bringing them back in, and they achieved enough sort of recognition that then, uh, you know, then it became sort of in people's interest for Philip K. Dick to be really cool. So that more and more of his books got turned into movies. So he became like the hot dead sci-fi writer to have, um, and that ho- kind of Hollywood attention spilled over, you know, into the mainstream. You know, meanwhile. Just the fact that his books are great, are, are, are fascinating at the very least, you know, is, is something that like a lot of people who might not normally read science fiction would begin to understand. So more mainstream book reviewers and, and you know, academics were always writing about him. They've been writing about him since the, since the late 60s or certainly since the early 70s, really. Um, more and more, you know, kind of uh, grit critics and people like that started to kind of recognize his, his power. Uh, and so that sort of created a kind of momentum there. So in some ways, it's just kind of the normal way that things kind of proceed in our society. And finally, in, in America, I don't, I, I don't know, it's, it's always seemed a little different in the UK, the way that the UK deals with, like, its, it's, it's eccentric figures. Mm-hmm. But in America, we love the outsider. We love this idea of somebody who's out of the normal zone that somehow does something great. And in the 60s, we couldn't, people could not have recognized, or 70s, could not have recognized somebody as tawdry as Philip K. Dick, you know, a, a, uh, an impoverished, drug-addled science fiction writer with psychological problems and schizophrenic breaks. That's just, that was too far beyond the pale, even for the counterculture. <laughs> but now, now that, now that all that countercultural, um, now that those guys are, you know, hitting in their 60s, we're, we're, everybody is familiar with the basic countercultural world of drugs and visionary experiences and weird lives and da-da-da-da. So Dick is sort of this archetypal 60s figure, you know, not a, a, not a hero of the 60s, but sort of like somebody who suffered through it. And, so he, and he is such an outsider. He's poor. He's, you know, uh, an autodidact. He had whatever four or five wives. I get, I get lost. <laughs> yeah, you know, he, a disreputable life, uh, and yet there's something kind of innocent and arrogant and uh, visionary about him. So in a way, he's just the the perfect iteration of what you know Jack Kerouac was to an earlier literary generation. He's uh, he serves that function for us. Hmm. And so every time you see a, a mainstream review in the New Yorker, the you know, you know, whatever 
LBR or whatever, you know, it's never just about the books. It's always about him too. You always got to tell his story. You know, the wives, the tooth, you know, the, the pink light experience, et cetera, et cetera, because it's part of the appeal is this person is is a is a, a hero or an anti-hero or a broken hero. Uh, and that's part of the appeal because I think a lot of people feel so, you know, um, woven into like this network of 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 uh, postmodern 21st century culture that there's no place to even pretend that you're outside of all of these immense uh, systems that are kind of absorbing and to some degree dictating your behavior. So the idea of somebody who lives this outsider life. But who actually gets you know can communicate from that place is very appealing. So that's kind of the more real world perspective on Dick's uh, popularity. But I I also believe that there's something really profound going on, something actually genuinely profound. And what that is is that um, in many different ways we're on the lip of or transiting to you know a kind of post-human reality. And what I mean by that is where our technologies, our social conditions, our um, understanding of the brain, our pharmacology, our um, media manipulation tricks, all of this sort of technology of consciousness and, and, and uh, subject, subjectivity alteration that we have developed over the last couple of centuries is driving to a kind of, you know, crisis point where are the, the sort of fictions of, of, of humans, of being humans, the stories we tell ourselves about how we're human become harder and harder to sustain. It doesn't mean we stop being uh, very ordinary in our lusts and our disappointments and our psychological mechanisms, but that the world itself, our, our, our shared social reality, begins to take on a kind of weirdness and a, uh, a, 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 a novelty that puts us into a kind of a new ball game. And I believe that transition, you know, sort of under, underway, it's already been underway for a long time, but it, it, it continues uh, in, a, in a very powerful way, especially as the larger world system starts to break down so that we're not, we, nobody believes in any kind of you know, utopian pro uh, myth of progress anymore. Nobody thinks we're about to turn, well, hardly anybody thinks we're about to turn the corner into some kind of glorious future, except hmm. for some, you know, a handful of singularity maniacs, hmm. uh, and, you know, and sort of extropian types, of, of which there don't seem to be that, that many. So Dick's world of dystopia, of a, of, a, of a crappy world where you're still struggling to get a job and the weather sucks and you're... you're um, your technologies are, 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 are yelling at you or tr confusing you or charging you money to get outside of, their, out, outside of your house. The whole vision of these sort of little, uh, you know, advertising bugs that are like flying in through your, through your, your car window or the coffee machine. You got to pay a little bit every morning. Like this, the fabric of commercialism, media technology, and the sort of breakdown in conventional social norms and human, uh, uh, human ways of uh, organizing the world begins to seem extremely familiar. Yeah. <laughs> and so what his books are then are, they're like little Bardo runs. They're little, they're little training scenarios for the dystopia around the bend. Uh, and that they're, they're prophylactic 
they are um, they're teaching their teachings uh, in, a, in a manner, and I believe that people recognize that even if they don't think about these things. Yeah. Even if they don't think about these things, there's something that resonates there. And so from that perspective, I, I do believe he's, he's kind of a prophet. He's just not a prophet the way that we used to think about prophets. He's not giving you a revealed text. He's not giving you a way to live. He's reflecting a conundrum that most of us, even the people, those among us who try to look at it, can't really deal with most of the time. Mm. Uh, and he shows how characters react to it. And he tests our ability to still sustain what he believes are the most important human or the important elements of being human, of being genuinely human, of not being an android. You know, there's all of these things around us, all these opportunities we have to android ourselves, to cyborg ourselves. That's what all these, you know, irritating data devices that have now permeating social, re social reality are doing. They're cyborging us. They're networking us. They're, they're teaching us how to model our reality, how to model our consciousness, the way that we... Um, perceive and process reality along these kind of quasi, you know, I won't say mechanistic, but algorithmic lines. We are, we are cyborging ourselves now. Mm. We, we start to wonder, like, what are authentic human values? Are those just fictions? Are those just Hollywood movies? Are those just poems we, we are recognizing in the rearview mirror as we hurtle into some kind of uh, post-human uh, reality? Hard to say, but what what Dick and that's that's the, the sort of emotional side of Dick's works is that even though his his uh, characters are very rarely heroic, although occasionally they make very heroic gestures, they're deeply recognizable in all of their flaws. And what they test in us, I believe, and what he wants them to test in us is our capacity for empathy and our capacity f to recognize that even in these degraded situations, there's always that opening. To possible. There's always that little bounce back that, that, that refuses a completely closed down claustrophobic prison world. And one of the most important things about reading Dick's, or one of the things, things to notice about Dick's work, and this is true in most of his books, not all of them, but in almost all of his novels, they end on a, a note of opening. They end on a new turn, mm. like not like quite like a new chapter is opening, but there's a new possibility. There's sort of a sense of people getting up off the ground and putting on their their suspenders and starting to move forward again. Uh, there's always this little gesture towards the new, and he talks about one of the thing, one of the ways he defines the authentic human is that which can bounce back and deal with the new. Mm. It's it's much more of an almost Taoist sense of following the flow of possibilities, of staying open to the emergence of new, um, uh, you know, new elements. That Taoist sensibility is very much in his work uh, as well. If you just look at the way the I Ching is used in, in the uh, Man in the High Castle and, and, and other places. So there's this sense of like how to actually live in a situation that, is, that, that may be quite degraded and, and freaked out and you know hopefully it's not going to be as nightmarish as some of some of his worlds but I, I really believe that they they serve as a kind of healing function so that they're simultaneously fun and amusing and bizarre and weird but also like hey on some level your reality is more like this than you even normally acknowledge because you don't really want to mm -hmm. uh, and and it, there, there's, so there's something kind of um, resonant about that that I believe that uh, readers pick up on yeah definitely I'm that was really good. Could you 
Would you say that your uh, interest in Philip K. Dick led you to your kind of uh, interest in the idea of technosis? Uh, yes, very much so. I mean, I went to I went to college. Uh, I, I went to um, Yale in the late '80s, and Yale was a bastion of postmodern thinking. You know, Jacques Derrida and Michel Foucault, and all these like big ideas. Hmm. Uh, and Jean Baudrillard, and Baudrillard wrote a lot about the simulacrum and the or hmm. the uh, the simulation and how, how our, our era is an era of simulation and that we have lost the real and all of these sorts of, uh, you know, theoretical, French theoretical ideas. But I was also a Philip K. Dick fan already and also a fan of Gnosticism, which I discovered through Dick's work. So I was reading a lot about ancient Gnosticism. And so I started to triangulate all these things. And my senior thesis, which I wrote in 1988, was called The, the Postmodern Gnosis of Philip K. Dick. And I took postmodernity, its ideas of simulation of false worlds, uh, the Gnostic idea of a false world, and then a number of Philip K. Dick books, and talked about it from this sort of postmodern Gnostic uh, angle, so they were always sort of triangulated uh, in in my head, um, but it definitely that that experience or that triangulation gave me a strong sensitivity to kind of uh, picking up the hidden mystical or magical or gnostic dimension to technological rhetoric, uh, meaning both the way we think and talk about technology, but also the way that we sort of experience. Uh, technology and particularly media technology and so I just started to pay attention to this stuff both in our contemporary environment and in uh, in the past and I started reading more media history reading about the history of writing the history of electricity the history of the telegraph the history of television and over and over and over and over I would come up with the same I would find the same metaphors the same ideas that were clearly rooted in the religious imagination. And so I was like, like, look, there's something going on here. And this was the mid-90s, early to mid-90s that I was doing this when, again, all these incredible ideas were emerging around the, the Internet. So what would become... You know, uh, you know, just at the point where the World Wide Web began and early ideas about virtual reality. And basically what I felt like was happening is that, this, is that the society at large was recognizing that something very big was just around the corner, that this Internet thing was going to really change stuff, or at least the way we, we, move, you know, we, we, we created reality or created, you know, constructed social reality. And before it got defined... And this is the pattern that comes up over and over again with new, with major new technologies. Before it come it became defined, there's this explosion of utopian and fantastic ideas mm. about new ways of organizing society, about new educational methods, about the ways we're going to transform, we're going to become new kinds of people, etc., etc., etc. And you see the same thing with television. You see the same thing with the telegraph. You go back and look at the history of the telegraph in the middle of the 19th century, and people are talking about collapsing time and space. You know, these huge cosmic ideas onto what now looks like this totally dorky kind of, you know, semaphore system. <laughs> uh, uh, and the same kind of thing now. Now that we're it, it, it enmeshed and mired in many ways in the Internet uh, and, you know, uh, 
you know, forgive me if you're a if you're a huge fan, but I it seems to me a decidedly mixed bag at this point. Mm. You know, and we just see the way that it's reproduced a lot of the already existing social inequalities and kind of problems with advertising and with human social relations and all this kind of stuff. And it's sort of it's now mutating and shifting and changing. And there's, yes, there's a lot of novelty. There's a lot of interesting things that are going on, but it's a lot of the same old story amplified and made even more addictive and more. Uh, kind of compulsive. So it doesn't look like utopia exactly. But in the mid-90s, it had a lot more oomph to it. So I was kind of very interested in, in how ideas about computers and network computers were also drawing off the storehouse of both utopian ideas and religious ideas. Uh, because at the same time, all the fears we have about technology are also drawn from these kind of archetypal imaginations. You know, there's the idea of Faust, of the sorcerer's apprentice, of, you know, the devil that runs out, of, gets out of control, of the, the, um, the hidden conspiratorial network, uh, the whole paranoid scenario of being controlled by distant machines. Well, if you take those paranoid scenarios, which, you know, are come up in actual schizophrenic experience, came up in Philip K. Dick's life. He had some experiences of feeling controlled by, you know, invading technological forces. Well, you just trace that back through time and you just come up with, you know, it's, it's magical manipulation and shamanic stuff. So magic, you know, is really a technique of perceptual management or perceptual uh, control. And so obviously as we develop more and more sophisticated technologies of perception management, the old world of magic is not going away. That's why magic is such a major metaphor to this day in computer games, because the world that the computer is representing, a world that's entirely built out of language or entirely built out of code and social interaction and imagination, code and imagination, that's the world of magic. Language and imagination, that's the world of sorcery, of control through sorcery, of wonder through sorcery. And so even as we're using all of these sophisticated devices that rely on quantum principles that re require highly sophisticated engineering in order to s sustain themselves, that psychologically, uh, in some ways, we are in a magical universe. And it's not like, wee, magical universe. It's not that kind of magical universe. It's like, it's like a shamanic universe where there's like envy darts and you get lost and there's hucksters and there's poisons and there's allies. And, you know, it's, it's a mess. But it's definitely not the rationalistic world that we still kind of tell ourselves uh, we're participating in. And that's only going to increase as um, our, uh, you know, modern... Uh, you know, uh, uh, infrastructure crumbles. The more that we see evidence of the incapacity of the official mainstream system to keep us happy and alive and hale and hearty, the more people are going to find metaphors and worldviews and reality tunnels from a more pre-modern pre uh, perspective uh, relevant. Um, so, you know, you know, magic is not going away, and uh, and I see that as very much um, you know a part of in in a way deeply bound up with our with our technologies, and that's the kind of stuff that led me to to uh, write Technosis, which I'm happy to say a decade later um, holds up pretty well. It's like <laughs> you know I wrote it. You think a book about technology written in the late '90s would be like pretty date, but it's actually pretty, it holds up pretty well. <laughs> I have to say. Excellent. I mean, do you think? Um that magic 
will have i mean in the traditional sense of how we used to receive magic through like initiation and uh you know like through groups like the golden dawn or the ota do you think they're going to have to because of this kind of renaissance of information almost do you think that they're going to have to kind of uh evolve the way in which they uh pass information along if that makes sense <laughs> yes I, I i do but i also do, i don't believe that they're um uh now anachronistic uh um i think that there's always if you look inside any vital cultural world there's an interplay between what you can think of as a conservative or more tradition oriented pole and a uh anarchic experimental pole mm. um and so that you know obviously the more experimental wing of of magic of chaos magic let's call it although there's other permutations that you don't need to call chaos magic but if you just think of it as the chaos magic idea that takes as a, a, a fundamental assumption the kind of postmodern idea that we create our own realities, that there's no, nothing inherent in any of these traditional symbols, that they're just a, a social agreements and that we can make different kinds of agreements and we can, uh, we're free in a way, uh, existentially free to sort of invent uh, these uh, magical frameworks. And obviously in some ways that view and the denialism that it skirts is very resonant and appropriate for our era, uh, uh, for an era where all bets are off, where um, you know everything is game and everything is trash. Hmm. Uh, and 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 I think that's it. So it's a very vital way of looking at it. At the same time, I strongly believe that there is a huge amount to be gained from plugging into currents of tradition whether those traditions come, even if they're sort of invented traditions, they still have a sense of passing from generation to generation, even if there's always transformation along the line. So that, you know, in some ways the Golden Dawn made a bunch of stuff up out of whole cloth, but in other ways they didn't. In other ways they were wisely transforming currents that came to them, and those currents come from other currents, go back and back and back. Uh, and that there's a great deal to be had out of a relationship with the past or a relationship with tradition. I think this is true in, as well in Buddhism. You can be a, you can be a neuroscience Buddhism where you don't believe, you don't care anything about ascended masters or bodhisattvas, and you're just interested in neurological techniques of self-observation, and you're kind of riding the the the, the you know the the wave of of neuroscience, but from a Buddhist perspective. And you can also you know be plugging into Tibetan traditions that are inevitably going to lead you into fully full-on magical realities of visualization and tantrad forms, et cetera, et cetera. And that those two things are they're they're complementary tensions, and I think the same thing happens in magic. Now, that doesn't mean that these traditional orders are not going to change, but I do think that there's something about initiation that sustains itself even in this kind of open uh, open network. I mean, there's a very interesting group that, that I'm uh, familiar with in the, on the West here called um, the Open Source Order of the Golden Dawn, and they have, you know, quite aggressively in some ways transform some Golden Dawn materials into a, a more uh, Thelemite uh, direction, introducing language and ideas from, uh, from the Book of the Law into uh, Golden Dawn uh, uh, tradition. Um, but more interestingly is this 
open source idea. A lot of them are tech people, uh, and if you go online, it's like they put all they, they you know they they list everything that they're doing. It's very open about you know they have some secrets, but it's they're basically trying to come up with a language that is very visible, you know, uh, that's exposed, if you will, that that breaks that kind of lore around around secrecy. Um, but that doesn't mean that there isn't something that there isn't a message in that secrecy. It's just that the secrecy can't take the form that you do because of the way information works now. That you can no longer create the sort of walls around what it is that you're doing. Instead, what becomes secret is really what's more becomes intimate. And that sense of intimacy and having a place where something you know, I- intimate and uh, uh, unusual can happen is still really important. Uh, and, and it's just that it, sh- it sort of shifts its, its field a little bit. Yeah. That's really that's a good way of looking at that. It's interesting. I mean, you've uh, obviously we're gonna have to let you go because we've been, you know, I think you've got to get off fairly soon, haven't you? But um, yeah, before you do go, you're going to be coming to the UK soon, aren't you? Um, yes. To, to something called the Equinox Festival. Do you want to tell us a little bit what, about the festival and about yeah. what your presentation will be about? Yeah, I'm really excited about this festival. It really looks like a one of the more interesting uh, o culture gatherings that I've known about. I mean, I know that other people have done similar festivals, but that I've not been able to attend. Uh, any where there's a, a great mix of, of uh, speakers, the speakers that I know about I'm all very interested in, some coming from a psychedelic perspective, some from uh, uh, chaos magic, some from other ritual traditions. Uh, and at the same time, there's going to be a lot of music and a lot of, uh, you know, kind of ritual performance, um, which is very interesting to me. Some great, uh, great, great musicians are going to be there as well. And I'm going to talk about uh, the phantasm. It's called a brief history of the phantasm, and it's a way of looking at one of the one of the dimensions of of, of magic and magical experience, which is the you know what we can call the imagination. Where does the imagination come from? What what are different ways of looking at what the imagination is, both historically uh, and in terms of practice, and particularly how the the, the phantasm the sort of simulacrum, the image that seems real but isn't or comes from some world where real and not real are, are, are sort of suspended, this kind of middle zone of uh, the imagination, how the phantasm gets mixed up with, uh, with technology, particularly with media technology and the way that even as we've entered into a modern world, our media technologies have kind of just shifted the sight of the phantasm to, um, to another dimension, uh, both kind of... Uh, brings it down to earth and also multiplies it. So um, it's it's. I think it'll be fun because I, I like to look at these things historically and philosophically. Like really, where do the ideas come from? How do they change? Uh, and how we can kind of put on these different ways of looking at things in order to see our own lives and our own experience uh, as magical practitioners or as people interested in the realm of the imagination, whether it's in fantasy novels or in uh, dreams or in psychedelia, you know, it all sort of overlaps in some level, uh, this, this imaginal world and how that imaginal world is, is changing now. So that's, that's what I'll be talking about. Yeah, sounds really good. Well, thanks a lot for uh, coming on the show. We're going to hopefully talk about Equinox Fest. It'll be nice to actually meet you in person. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Thanks for uh, if, uh, giving us some of your time. If people want to kind of track you down on the web, where should they, where should they look? Yeah, my website is uh, Technosis, www.techgnosis.com, and I have tons of my writing there and some podcasts and, you know, lots and lots of articles on lots of different topics. So um, people tend to, if they, like, if they like this kind of stuff, they'll usually find something they enjoy there. Yeah, excellent. Well, thanks again, man. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Excellent. Excellent.
Hello, and more MySpace heroes with me, Dan Tank. For your ears today, migration. They said that committed suicide. Action world. Am I paranoia? Dotted fields with rain dance. And Zella with BT Immortalitis. Excerpt.
Okay, we're back. Thanks to Daddy Tank for the uh, yeah another. I think that's the ninth instalment now of his MySpace Heroes, where he uh, brings you some great weird. If you enjoy that kind of stuff, then make sure you go to the site or onto the iTunes feed and check out the new show we're doing called Behind Closed Doors, um, which isn't a replacement for the show, which was uh, seemed to worry some people just because we hadn't done an episode for a while. But no, it's actually a uh, it's a side project, I suppose. <laughs> If you can call it that but anyway back to uh, eric davis what did you uh, think of mr davis raymond oh eric's great you know he uh had that great fast talking west coast kind of attitude and got a lot of information out and i think that was probably the best review i've ever heard of philip k dick's work yeah he definitely and knows his if subject that didn't, if, if that didn't get you interested i don't know what will no i mean i i cannot recommend philip k dick enough he's my favorite kind of novelist i suppose um, I mean, like, like we said in the uh, interview, a good place to start is uh, The Three Stigmata of Palmer. I always get this the wrong way around. You have Palmer Eldritch. That's a very good book. Very weird, very out there, very cool. But um, yeah, no, check it out. It's really, really good. Uh, and then obviously anything that kind of period of his writing is just incredibly expansive, if he's for a better word. <laughs> but anyway, we alluded earlier in the episode that we were going to talk about uh, the tour dates a bit more. So uh, do you want to run off your uh, your advertising pitch raymond <laughs> oh right here's here's here comes the schlock segment of the show right <laughs> well yes ken through your wonderful efforts and help and networking skills we have got a promotional tour coming up for uh the uk and one date in amsterdam if you'll visit disinformationworldtour.com you can get all the details we'll be doing um, a Culture Festival 2009. That'll be the kickoff of the tour in London. That's May the 23rd. And then we'll be doing uh, a couple of dates in London as well. A date in Stroud, a date in Brighton, and a date in Amsterdam. So and maybe one in Oxford as well. That's, that's still yet to be confirmed. Yes. So, um, so keep your eyes peeled for that. Like I said, disinformationworldtour.com. The tour itself consists of a four-hour program. It'll be a one-hour spoken word performance by me and Austin Gandy. It'll be sort of a duet. We're calling it Stooges of the Occult, and it's sort of a satire takeoff on New Age, uh, neo-pagan, and occult movements, or at least what we've seen of them down here in hmm. the southeast part of the United States. wonder I've heard that and, title before, Raymond. I don't I don't know where we got that title. I don't know who thought that up. I think it came to me in a vision. Uh, <laughs> I, no, actually, Ken, yes. Ken did think up the title Stooges of the Occult and was going to name an episode of his show that, but he never got around to it. So we've made it the name of our spoken word. Mm-hmm. I hope you don't mind, Ken. Well, you know, so, I will be uh, you know, sending my lawyers after you if there's any money made from this, but... <laughs> Well, you know, you are our quote-unquote tour manager for our quote-unquote world tour. So <laughs> more well we do appreciate <laughs> So he's going to hold me over like he's going to dangle me from my ankles by like over a balcony like shit night before it's over with. <laughs> That's how we roll in the UK. <laughs> you're going to, uh, I don't know, you're going to drink beer like you've never drunk it before or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And smoke more expensive cigarettes than I've ever smoked before. <laughs> and see, wor- see worse teeth than you've ever seen before. Uh, well, I doubt that. But, um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Stooges of the Occult, right? Spoken word, one hour, and then there's an hour and a half of 2012 Science or Superstition, Disinfo's new documentary about the 2012 phenomenon, 
and sort of takes takes on both views and get a great overview of what people think about it and where its origins come from. And then we'll have guest speakers each night um, at a culture. There's, of course, a bunch of speakers like Gary Lachman or Lachman. I don't know exactly how it said. He, he's a, a cult author. He wrote the book Turn Off Your Mind and Politics in the Occult and a few others. He's also a member of Blondie. Um, we'll be doing a date, the date up in Stroud. The guest speaker is Bruce Fenton from 2012 Rising. If you remember that 2012 thing episode of Sitting Now, he was the guest for that. And then uh, in Brighton, we've got some musical guests, and um, yeah, I think yeah, and that's going to be more of a um, performancey kind of night. I think we're going to, be, I'm hoping we're going to have HRT. We have this really cool kind of. Uh, actually, if you've listened to Behind Closed Doors, you can hear them. They're kind of like weird, uh, ambient kind of noise band stuff. They're really good. They're kind of hard to explain, but if you if you check out, I think it's the, uh, episode two of Behind Closed Doors. You'll be able to hear them, and we might have a speaker as well. We'll that should be a fun one. The Brighton show should be good because it's my hometown, boy. Hey, all right, and then we go down to the beach and race the motorcycles. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, like uh, Lost Boys, right after it's all over. So, um. Anyway, I'm I'm really looking forward to this trip, Ken. And like I said before, I can't help you enough. And yes, it is sittingnow.co.uk presents the disinformation world tour, or at least the European leg. Anyway, so come out to that. Uh, typical prices around five, six pounds uh, for the four-hour program, unless it's the big festival night. And uh, yeah, it should be definitely worth your money. You can, uh, you know, get swag from us. You can hang out and talk with us afterwards. We'd love to you know, connect with our listeners in the UK. And Ken will be there. Mm-hmm. And you can connect with him at the same time. He'll be... Uh, You've completely gone. I've completely gone. Oh, there you are. You're back now. There we go. Yeah, I, yeah, I just said the, the, the boss MC or whatever they call it. So. <laughs> okay. Oh, well, yeah, we missed that bit. So do you, do you want to say that bit again quickly? Where do I start back from? Uh, you said Ken will be there and he will be... I think, uh, uh, yes, Ken will be there for each night as, as as the awesome tour manager that he is and recording some stuff for Sitting Now as we're along the road. And, you know, you can meet him as well. He'll be the awesome master of ceremonies. Mm-hmm. And master of many things on that tour, let me tell you. But anyway, <laughs> if you want to check us out, uh, obviously, sorry, actually, Raymond, if people want to kind of get in contact with you or check out your work, where should they look on the internet? Oh, well, they should go to disinfo.com slash podcast. They can download our current work which is called disinformation world news and disinformation the podcast there are two series one of them is a news series obviously and the other one features interviews with authors and filmmakers they can also check out outthereradio.net which is my <coughs> excuse me <coughs> they can also check out outthereradio.net which is uh, mine, Joe, and Austin's previous podcast it was a 50-episode series about the occult, conspiracy theories, hidden history, and other fringe topics. Um, yeah, you can send me an email, ray at disinfo.com. And like I said, check out disinformationworldtour.com for more information about our upcoming promotional trip to the UK and uh, Amsterdam. Cool beans. Right, okay, well, so yeah, if you want to check us out on the web, we're sittingnow.co.uk want to contact me it's ken at sittingnow.co.uk uh, sittingnow.co. if you want to follow me on twitter 
which I'm going to somehow turn into the City Now Twitter feed. It's uh, twitter.com forward slash Ken Scanner, just K-E-N-S-C-A-N-N-A, which is kind of a weird name. But yeah, if you want to check, check us out on that, if you want to talk to us on Hotmail, on uh, MSN Messenger rather, it's uh, evildeadgenius at hotmail.com. And that's about it. So we'll uh, hopefully see you next week. Uh, we've got some, like I said, in the last episode, we've got a load of really cool guests coming up and uh, hopefully we'll get them out a bit quicker now. So uh, see you next week.